Welcome to Poverty Unpacked, the podcast series in which we discuss the hidden sides of poverty. In conversation with others, we explore how poverty affects the mind, relationships, emotions and society as a whole, and what can be done to change it. In this episode, we'll be talking about the role of social protection as part of the response to COVID-19. Social protection includes social assistance or welfare benefits, as well as social insurance schemes such as unemployment benefits or labor market policies such as furlough schemes. Worldwide, we have seen a massive increase in the number of schemes being implemented in order to respond to the socioeconomic consequences of lockdown measures and other restrictions that were put in place to curb the pandemic. In this episode, we will hear from Hugo Gentilini, who is Senior Economist with the Social Protection and Jobs Global Practice at the World Bank. We will also hear from Francesca Bastardi. She is Director of the Equity and Social Policy Programme at the Overseas Development Institute. Both have long-standing experience in working on social protection across the world, and they will be sharing their views on social protection as part of the COVID response, and crucially also about what happens in the medium to long term. First, let's consider the expansion of social protection since the onset of the pandemic in March of this year. Ugo explains how the increase in this policy area has been unlike anything we've seen before. I think that uh, what we have seen in the past six months uh, has been uh, pretty unprecedented, I think, in, uh, in terms of uh, both volume and uh, in many ways also speed of response. We have seen this uh, very remarkable growth since March. We um, uh, recorded almost uh, 1,200 uh, measures uh, in virtually every country and territories out there with uh, the large majority of the response, uh, over 60% being in, uh, uh, in terms of social assistance. So there is a lot of action also on social insurance and uh, the supply side of labor market interventions, but the bulk of, of the action has been around social assistance and cash transfers have played a major role as as a, as a core vehicle for, for such response, over uh, about one third of global measures take the form of cash transfers. Now, these have been uh, nearly doubled in terms of uh, generosity relative to pre-COVID levels. And uh, if we look at the scale-up rate of uh, the pace at which uh, countries have uh, uh, scaled up their pre-existing uh, programs, we see that that's over 200%. <laughs> And we estimate that nearly 17% of uh, the world's population is covered by some form of cash transfers that um, is either planned or implemented. So clearly the response to COVID-19 has led to more people receiving some form of social protection. In low and middle income countries, this is mostly in the form of cash transfers. In high income countries, it tends to be a combination of wage subsidies, unemployment benefits and cash transfers. But of course, the next question is, how effective have these measures been in providing support? Francesca explains the various parameters that need to be taken into account. In the immediate instance, in terms of immediate response, the sort of criteria or things we're we're interested in looking at are the the timeliness or the speed of response, because urgency is is an important factor in, in a crisis like this one. 
there's a question around the coverage and scale of response. Uh, are, the, are the high number of people that have been negatively affected by the crisis, are they being reached? And adequacy in terms of the type of social protection provided and the levels. So given the, the needs resulted from this um, terrible crisis, is the response adequate in that sense? And for a start, what we need to see is whether the announced measures and initiatives, whether they've even been implemented or delivered. Because we know, of course, that there can be a mismatch between the two. And the picture is mixed, where we're seeing in some countries, indeed, progress in implementation as, as announced, as planned. In others, slower progress or some delays. And in others, no progress or some clear mismatch between announcements and what's been delivered on the ground. So generally, the sense is that some of the, you know, some of the measures taken, some of the provisions made are certainly in the right direction, but that there's a lot of variation in terms of what has been delivered in practice. And, and as a result of that, indication we're getting on the effectiveness of, of the measures taken. While it is still too early to assess the impact of the many measures that were implemented and how they may have helped families during the pandemic, we can already learn various lessons. One of these is around how to provide support to groups that are usually excluded from social protection. This often includes those who are of working age and that are employed in the informal sector or have precarious jobs. Because they are able to work, these individuals tend to be excluded from schemes such as cash transfers or other welfare payments. But the pandemic has highlighted the vulnerability of these and other groups, and they can often be found in urban areas. Where, where I think we've seen some of the more interesting initiatives or efforts in, in, in the last month has been around initiatives or reforms to extend social protection to population groups that, that were broadly excluded from social protection. The crisis has highlighted social protection gaps, um, including among groups like those that are now labeled essential or frontline workers. These are often low-paid workers with no or limited worker protection. Here, a number of initiatives have been happening. We've seen introduction of cash transfers to reach those that are unemployed, migrant workers, um, so as you might know, in many countries, cash transfers were, were pre-COVID, were primarily designed to reach uh, population groups other than the working age. This is, this is changing in a number of countries that have adopted cash transfers to specifically try to reach that, that group. Similarly, efforts to extend in-kind transfers, public, public distribution of food and other in-kind transfers to groups that otherwise wouldn't receive it. I'm thinking of migrants. Um, undocumented people and others, adjusting social insurance benefits uh, by waiving contributions have been also, I think, effective in bringing in groups of workers that into the sort of social security sphere that were previously excluded. So this is where some of the movement is happening that I think is, is particularly of interest. One key area where we have seen uh, growing action, and it's uh, it's one where where we do need to see more and better social protection is is urban areas. And urban areas have been uh, contrary to conventional wisdom, where one thinks of urban areas as uh, less in need. Actually, the the crisis has shed light on uh, on urban vulnerabilities and how little coverage exists in those areas, and that. Uh, 
the jobs that the uh, employee most of uh, the population is actually very volatile and unpredictable and formal. So we have to think of ways of uh, extending coverage in urban areas, and that should not come at the expense, of course, of uh, coverage in rural areas. And working in, uh, in urban environments present different challenges, uh, working with and devising programs for highly mobile populations, contexts where data gets outdated extremely quickly, where um, how to operate in uh, informal settlements where government services uh, are sometimes not easily provided, working in high crime areas and um, contexts where people face high opportunity costs because of uh, time spent in commuting, living in one place, working elsewhere. So the moment that we, we think of cities, we have to look at cities as systems, whereby it's not just about providing cash transfers, is how you contextualize that intervention in an environment where housing, transport, uh, municipal services, and jobs are all closely interconnected. In addition to highlighting which groups need to be covered or are covered by new measures of social protection, the pandemic has also highlighted the need for strong systems to be in place. This ensures that measures and programs can be rolled out quickly and that they provide an adequate and timely response to those who need it when a crisis like COVID-19 hits. At the same time, it is also important to flag that social protection is not just something that should kick in at a time of crisis. It is a system that should provide support at any time when people need it. And this also links to ongoing discussions about universal social protection and putting in place mechanisms to make that work. So the crisis at a minimum has highlighted that systems need to be in place. So those countries that are best positioned to respond to shocks are those that have a social protection system in place. And this needs to be a system that that is made up of a range of different instruments that interact within each other, among each other, that are coordinated and that provide uh, support across the life cycle. So this acknowledgement alone, I think if we're able to help ensure that that is that understanding is somehow maintained moving forward will help to make the case that some of the efforts that have been made in the past months in response to the crisis continue to be built on as opposed to to dismantled. So I think we need to keep on learning, sharing experiences, uh, continue to build the recognition around this, the role that social protection systems play, and, and to make sure that this focus is not just on social protection as a mechanism to respond to shocks. Because I think there is a risk there as well as of of equating social protection with a shock response mechanism primarily, which of course it isn't. I mean, that's one of its functions, but it isn't just that. These are systems that need to be in place at all times and and for everybody. I think what this crisis is is doing for the moment is, uh, is to shed light on the need of I'll list a few important points that whether one is pessimistic or optimistic, I think one could all agree on. I think that uh, on one hand, there is the need to have delivery systems in place that in principle reach everybody, literally everybody. There is a lot of debate around universal social protection, how to get there, how to start, how to combine assistance and insurance or 
Should it be pursued with one program only or multiple programs? Do you start from the formal sector or informal sector? I think there are a number of interesting questions there, but I think that the basic point that this crisis is showing is that we do need whatever is going to be the direction that countries take. They do need universality in delivery systems. And this has been uh, a a significant challenge also in high-income countries, actually. So reaching the whole population is sometimes easier said than done. Having proper investments in identification systems, payments, uh, payment mechanisms, management information systems, those will not only facilitate and underpin the, the large-scale response of countries, but can very much be seen as an emergency preparedness uh, mechanism as well. So it's clear that we need to start building or moving towards systems that reach everyone in one way or another. The current expansion of social protection to groups that didn't previously receive support may provide opportunities for building such a system, and it can open the door for other types of support. For many people, the support received through social protection at the time of COVID was their first interaction with government. This is something that can be built upon. It's very, I think, easy to, unfortunately, <laughs> to be complacent and, uh, and think, uh, oh, people are rich with, with cash, that's great, and uh, job done. Cash is just a means. And uh, I think we very often are, have our eyes on what to provide and, and on the how-tos. Well, we have to think of all those mechanisms just as means for an end. And that, uh, that is important because people need much more than cash. Cash, however, is something very concrete and tangible that states can, uh, can build upon and that they can use as a, as a window. That's another interesting development as part of COVID. Uh, people that were never really in touch with the state actually were so sometimes for the first time. So the question is uh, how to build on that, uh, on that contact point and think of ways of helping and facilitating labor market integration, the provision of services, including housing and social services, and and looking at cash as one part of this broader equation and not just an end in itself. Being able to afford a system like this is key. Questions about financing are always important for social protection, but they are likely to take center stage in the coming months and years as the need for social protection remains high while fiscal space to pay for these schemes is likely to shrink due to economic recessions. At the same time, the pandemic may have created a demand on behalf of populations that were previously excluded from social protection, and this may lead to pressure on governments to do more. Very soon, financing issues will take center stage and What we have seen based on uh, a rapid review that we conducted with colleagues at uh, UNICEF and uh, the OECD is that in most cases, uh, extensions in coverage have been financed uh, via domestic uh, debt and uh, deficit spending as a premier vehicle for financing. And uh, with uh, the current uh, economic prospects and uh, fiscal space and growing needs, countries or are going to face uh, important trade-offs in in how to sustain those commitments. But on the other hand, I think that uh, there's going to be an interesting conversation on the political economy, on political economy issues, whereby 
populations that were previously unserved or underserved by social protection programs may may actually express a demand for coverage and uh, that may influence the direction and the policy the policy debate so i think it's uh, it's still an open question so one of the key challenges moving forward will be to continue to harness what has worked to date and 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 lessons learned so far so the a key challenge moving forward, and you've already alluded to this, of course, is the fiscal one, is the financing. So if in some contexts we have seen expansion, the question is, you know, this may be feasible in the short term, what's going to happen in the medium long term? And in fact, if you, do, if you look at the, some of the measures taken, particularly if you think of some of the cash transfer measures that were adopted, some of these are one-off cash transfer payments or payments that of the duration of, of two, three months, sometimes less than that. So the question is, particularly in context where the shock has yet to be felt in, in full and where we're still waiting to see in the months to come, you know, what will happen, where are these measures going to, what will they lead us to, right? And what, what's next? Uh, and from a public spending perspective, of course, as economies contract, there will be additional pressures. This is clearly a, a big, a big question mark. It's also true that this is a moment in which governments are particularly well placed to, to seriously consider the various options for financing social protection that, that exist. And in some sense, it's a moment to that could be used to strengthen political will, because at the heart of the matter, often when it comes to financing are barriers linked to, to political will. So there are financing gaps and opportunities to fill them that simply, quite frankly, require some courage to, to, for them to be faced. Clearly, there's a rocky road ahead for social protection. And the many uncertainties surrounding the pandemic, infection rates and the restrictions that are put in place to halt infection rates mean that we need to remain flexible. At the Center for Social Protection at the Institute of Development Studies, colleagues and myself have argued for the need for scenario planning, taking into account the many ways that COVID-19 and its socio-economic consequences may develop in the medium and long term. This requires an aspirational perspective for social protection that keeps an eye on providing support to everyone who needs it in an inclusive and equitable manner but also necessitates a degree of flexibility and realism in terms of what is possible when. The good news is that the experiences during the COVID pandemic seem to have brought about a significant change in narrative, with more people seeing the value and importance of social protection and welfare. This is the case in many countries. A recent study in the UK, for example, found that attitudes towards welfare were much more positive than they have been in a long time. This shift can also be observed elsewhere, meaning that social protection may now have firmly entered mainstream policymaking. I am positive that whether the future is going to uh, be about uh, enhanced coverage of social protection or not, I hope it is, but uh, I think the perception is changing. What I see is a cultural shift. And as I mentioned, if there are countries that are using cash as a monetary policy, it's pretty remarkable as well. And um, that's a kind of underlying uh, fundamental change is how the culture and the attitude 
around social protection are changing. Whether that's going to result in the coming six months in more or less coverage, that's hard to say, but I pretty see very much a cultural change happening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Poverty Unpacked. If you liked what you heard, please follow us on our website or on social media, including Twitter and Instagram. If you have any suggestions about what to include in future episodes or blog posts, please get in touch. We look forward to having you with us next time.